podcast ain't playing nobody. This is very much the preseason of what will be very much a a new season. So welcome. This is podcast ain't played nobody. This is 2.0. If that means something to you, great. I'm glad you're here. If this is your first time, even better. Um, we'll talk a little bit about 2.0 in a second. I just want to say hi. Also, welcome to the Banner Society. Um, if you have been following myself on Twitter at 38Godfrey, uh, any of my colleagues like Spencer Hall or Jason Kirk or Holly Anderson or Brian Floyd, um, you have noticed us kind of, uh, you know, professionally goofing around and passing it off as being coy and, you know, tactful, viral marketing, I believe. We should have charged ourselves thousands of dollars to do that. Um, anyway, afootballwebsite.com. You've seen us screwing around with that URL all summer. It's bounced you around to different photos and videos and 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 just captured the essence of college football. Um, afootballwebsite.com now is going to take you to a newsletter sign up that launches August 5th for the Banner Society. Well, what's the Banner Society? The Banner Society is the new home for me, for Podcast Ain't Played Nobody, for all of the goons over at Shutdown Fullcast and that terrible, terrible podcast itself, uh, and a bunch of other friends. It is a completely separate new entity, vertical brand. I don't know what we called them on Vox Media. Um, so we are our own little pirate ship, just like um, your friends at Eater or The Verge. Uh, the Banner Society is 110% dedicated to college football and then also other things that have nothing to do with college football except that when we do those other things, we will do them in the most college football way humanly possible. So go to a footballwebsite.com. It won't take you to a weird photo of Arizona State's uniforms anymore. It might. I don't know. We might screw it up. But it should take you to a newsletter sign up. That's going to start rolling out on August 5th. We will have more stuff to show you, to tell you, like a real website, like things you can do, places you can see us, things you can buy, podcasts, all kinds of cool stuff that's all going to sort of unfurl. You see what I did there? From the Banner Society as we march through August, as we hit week zero, and then ultimately we get into the actual proper God-fearing 2019 college football season that is technically starting on Labor Day weekend. But, you know, when you have Miami, Florida, I feel like it is actually starting in August. So go to afootballwebsite.com. Sign up for the damn newsletter. If you're a PAPN fan from the past, you're going to love it. If you're a PAPN fan that's just starting out, you'll probably like it. We're still going to figure out what PAPN 2.0 is. But so about PAPN 2.0, that's me, that's Stephen Godfrey. I am the host of this here podcast. Um, we are going to walk hand in hand together into a new age of PAPN. We are going to use this wonderful, sticky, slow, you know, not dreadful because it's not cold weather, but it's August has a certain vibe about it. We're going to use August uh, the way football would. And this is it. This is the preseason. It's going to be it's going to be sloppy. Definitely out of shape. I just took a breath as I said that for no reason. I've been sitting down all day. Um it's really hot and gross outside. We are going to get better slowly. Uh, we are going to uh, find our new footing, find our new cadence, and we are also going to have a lot of friends show up at the house. Uh, so try not to be barefoot and shirtless. Uh, a lot of friends will join me this August. We're going to kind of rotate uh, co-hosts that come in and talk to me about different things. We're going to talk about a wide variety of stuff. So it'll be analysis, it'll be stats and gambling and recruiting and dirt and weird stuff and all that. Um, 
we are listening. We are watching. You can always hit me up at 38 Godfrey. Um, but if you are a longtime PAP and listener, I would encourage you just to kind of lean in right now um, and, and play around with this. Nothing that you hear this week or next week is going to be sort of permanent. Um, we are going to have a rotation of co-hosts that, that are going to kind of come along on this journey with me throughout the actual proper football season. I'm happy to have them. They're awesome. You're going to love them. Um, PAPN is going to be part of a banner society in a big, big way. And we're also going to be doing some stuff that I've wanted to do for a really long time. We have really nice, fancy new equipment. Um, you are going to go with me in a way in which I've just honestly wished I could do over the, the last couple of years as PAPN grew in popularity, but we didn't really have the sort of methodology to you know figure all that out or the means to do it. Um, we've already canned some awesome interviews with some coaches. We're going to do more of that. Um, so PAPN is not going to be sort of one thing anymore. It's going to be a variety of things. The overarching theme is just that, you know, we want to be your college football podcasts, favorite college football podcast. We are beholden to no one. Uh, we are not rights holders. We are not corporate, corporate partners of anything other than daily harvest, delicious food sent to your house. And I'll get to them in a second. Uh, we, uh, we have total freedom here. And so we want to, um, we want to scrape and pick and, and be honest about the news. We want to say the things that you halfway shouldn't say in certain circles. We want to be as transparent and honest, but also as reverent as humanly possible about the college football industry, all of it, the coaching and the media and the recruiting and, and every aspect possible. So we're going to find the things that we think are, are insanely interesting and weird and tucked away in the corner and we're going to try and tell you about them and hopefully you'll love it as much as we do and you know we'll also talk about alabama's quarterback situation if we have to <laughs> if, you know if we absolutely have to but other than that we're going to stay weird we're going to stay um interesting hopefully not too esoteric uh come climb along if you've never been uh been with us on a journey i'm excited uh, I'm also rambling a little bit, so I just want to remind you one more time, go to afootballwebsite.com, sign up for the Banner Society newsletter. You're going to find a bunch of cool stuff. Uh, another bit of house cleaning. Uh, uh, people have contacted me through Twitter and Reddit over the summer about advertising on PAPN. Yes, it's a thing. We love Daily Harvest. Um, by all means, if you are interested in advertising on this here, wildly popular, highly rated, coveted, uh, college football podcast thing, uh, go to uh, podcasts, podcast plural, podcasts.voxmedia.com. Again, that's podcasts.voxmedia.com. You can also check out podcast singular dash sales at voxmedia.com. That's the email. But um, the people who sell the stuff told me that you should go mainly to podcasts.voxmedia.com. And then there's a sign up information. There's You can inquire and figure out how, uh, how to hawk your product. So I'm here, man. I'll whore out. Speaking of which, uh, I'm going to talk to you in a second about Daily Harvest, and those are all genuine, pure thoughts. Uh, two segments today. We are just kind of dicking around. I mean, honestly, just uh, if not everything has to be a metaphor for football and coaching and, and players and stuff, but this is very much the the feeling of a lot of those times I've been on embeds and assignments and preseason stuff where like coaches are all – you're there, you're at work, but you don't have like a pressing matter. You don't have a game that week and you're just sitting around a conference room table talking uh, about football and just kind of figuring out where the conversation is going to take you. So I have two individuals joining me today to do that. Uh, Richard Johnson, you can find him uh, at RJ underscore rights on Twitter. 
uh, Floridian, uh, a damn good writer reporter. Uh, unfortunately, lives in Brooklyn. That's his decision, not mine. Uh, millennial, he's very young. It's a little off-putting. We'll work on it. Um, and then also Bud Elliott. You know Bud Elliott. At Bud Elliott. By the way, two L's and two T's in Bud, uh, Bud Elliott. At Bud Elliott 3 on Twitter. If you don't know Bud, Bud founded Tomahawk Nation. Um, he was the head of recruiting at SB Nation uh, before he came over to Banner Society with us. Bud knows between Bud and Richard, we're going to have Florida very, very, very covered this fall. Um, Bud knows everything that you don't know about Florida State and things about the state of Florida in college football that you probably never want to know. Uh, he is the quintessential Florida man. So uh, first Richard, then Bud. Uh, I'm glad you're here. Let's go do this together. Let's have figure out cool new ways to love college football. Uh, but first. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, Richard, you're a confirmed millennial. How off-putting would it be to watch a college football game at 10 in the morning? I like really can't think of much worse. I have to watch a really bad NFL team at like 9 o'clock in the morning sometimes. And it's not a particularly fun experience. I can only imagine watching like Oregon State and Cal go at it before I've even eaten lunch and I'm still hungover from Friday night. Well, okay, for the record, you live on East Coast time. I do. So this proposal by the Pac-12 that everyone made a really big deal about, this would not really affect us a ton. No, it would make it it would make it one o'clock. It would be a minor inconvenience because the games start with a staggered start, but whatever. But the games, we I mean, we would already have football content to consume. Yes, yes. So what was the point of all this outrage? If you, I mean, the majority of the people that are, are in the college football zeitgeist are not affected by this. If you are a hardcore, I don't know, Utah or Arizona fan, and you don't want to be in the stadium at 10 a.m., that is a legitimate concern. I did not see any of that particular kind of gnashing of teeth when when everyone was was flipping out about this proposal all i saw were people making fun of the pac-12 well i mean the pac-12 can't do anything without it being needlessly corporate so i get it it just i i think it's i I think there is some yeah we all love dunk on the pac-12 whatever but like i think more than anything like it's one of those things that sounds like a half-cocked idea maybe you sit with it for a few more minutes and think uh oh, maybe it'll work or maybe it's not that bad whatever but like i think you know i think larry scott at a podium saying anything is going to invite ridicule no matter what he says um if this had been any other conference i probably would have been really really excited about it um i, I and this is this is what i'm getting at with you i need i need like a millennial gut check here do you on Saturdays, like feel like that morning window is sacred for game day. Are you busy? Are you asleep? I am. I'm either asleep or watching college game day. Um, I think like for for people my age, I'm 26. For people my age, I think college game day. If you grew up a college football fan, or you grew up tailgating, you grew up going to games or whatever, like college game day is 
not just a TV show. Like, I watch College Game Day instead of watching Saturday morning cartoons. I don't know if that makes me a freak or some, you know, ridiculous You're saying you did that when you were younger? Yeah, I did that when I was like 8, 9, 10 years old. Like, I would watch College Game Day over cartoons. Like, that. that's just what I would do when I was a kid. Um, and obviously that continued in my teenage years and into college. Like that, that Saturday morning window, yeah, is kind of sacred. Um, but I, I do get the, the time staggered thing where it'd be 10 AM local. I mean, if anything, like, I, I mean, look, the stadium is going to be half empty probably anyway, Maybe it's just emptier at ten in the morning. I like it's it's one of those things that more than anything was a solution, not necessarily in search of a problem because I, like there is a problem there, but it was like it was just not the best solution or not is the best solution. I I mean, are, are they literally gonna do it? I enjoy. I, that's what we don't know. And what I enjoy so much about the Pac-12, and what I don't understand why the sports media doesn't appreciate them more, is they more than any other conference or institution or or entity in this sport are willing to just air out like half-assed ideas that may not even happen in public. Yeah, it's but the amazing. problem. I mean, I get that, but the problem is it comes off like they're like just scratching and clawing for any identity and they don't ever do it in an endearing way like that's the problem like you say what you want about it just means more which god it's just cringeworthy as like a corporate you know whatever but like at the end of the day i mean you live in tennessee i'm from florida like we're from this sec part of the country like makes sense as like a shared vision of all the stakeholders involved like it's 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 a it's an organization coalescing around an identity of screw you we are better than you it means more because it is in these 13 12 13 states whatever whatever but it's so like yeah it's a corporate slogan that has this like tendril of authenticity as as much as a corporate slogan can but the pac-12 stuff it's always just like corporate business business and like there's never any like authenticity to it there's never any like i don't think for a second that larry scott polled any student on this like i or any alum or any anybody like that it's just you know that this is a bunch of suits in a boardroom that are making this decision Arizona's out automatically because if you even if you had a kick in September at 10 a.m., that doesn't make a, a ton of difference. Like you're still you're still going to be in those hazard zones. Yeah, I mean that means the game ends at two o'clock. Right, it's still going to be just horrific and borderline inhumane to play those games. So I know it's only two schools, but then I mean the most SEC-ish fan bases that do come to mind in that conference, or Big Ten-ish for that matter, to be diplomatic, or even Big Twelve-ish. Um, you know, Wazoo would be furious, and they should be, to start a game at nine in the morning on Saturdays. I mean, I just maybe how about how about an hour earlier? Honestly, uh, like maybe maybe just stagger it a little bit. I don't necessarily think that we need nine a.m. Eastern or nine a.m. local kickoffs. That seems a little inhumane for the kids. Yeah, I like. 
I, I don't know. I think that uh, so obviously they're not, it, this is not going to be your best game. Like I use the no. I use the example of Oregon State Cal like lovingly. I love Cal's defense. I love Justin Wilcox as a schematic guy. Whatever. But like it, that's the class of game that they are putting on in this window. Let's just be frank about the situation. So like the the class of game does not really engender much fervor anyway which is yes. the reason you're sticking it at 10 in the morning um yeah maybe the pack should be commended by you know copping to the fact that we're just going to put the trash in the trash slot but you know so just to go through week one real fast well week one's probably not a great example because there's a little bit of like your oregon auburn go to like yeah go to like week three like get some of the early season the the cream puff games out of the way and so to go through as a simulation of the tasting menu I will say this. I would welcome, and again, not at the expense of like poor Wazoo fan listening to this or poor Oregon fan or whatever. I would appreciate any injection whatsoever into the 11 a.m. slot because it has been just reliably ass for like the last three years. And it's because we're now backloading the the proliferation of the conference networks combined with where networks are trying to score ratings on like their big household ratings, everything shifted to primetime, right? A- after this last realignment in TV deal, the emphasis on primetime games has never been stronger, well, as it Fo- should be, it makes sense. Well, well, I will say, Fox is Fox is trying to take that back. Fox, I think, is seeing that right now. But, these, but, but like 11 has been so bad for so long. So, okay, here's September. So this is September, so this is week two, all right? I'll, I will rattle off your 11 o'clock kickoffs real fast. And you've got Ohio at Pitt... Army at Michigan, which is deceptively good. Bowling Green at K-State. South Carolina at Charleston Southern. So you get a lot of those. Old Dominion, Virginia Tech. Cincinnati at Ohio State. That is a good, certifiably good football game. Uh, Rutgers at Iowa. Syracuse at Maryland. UAB at Akron. Vandy going to, wow, Vandy's going to Purdue. Uh, And then West Virginia at Mizzou, which is not a Big 12 game. Wait, Vandy's going to Purdue? Sorry. Right. I know, right? See, this is weird. We haven't done this yet. You get the, that, that visceral, like, oh, God. Uh, so that's that's maybe the most solid 11 a.m. lineup I've seen compared to all of last season. And it's still pretty terrible to the point where you, millennial, will probably like be able to consume that as you are getting ready for the bigger day of football. Whereas like I, father, would be like... Okay, whatever shit I need to do, we're going to get it done now before yeah, 2 so, Central. So my, like... Let's let's take everybody behind the curtain. Uh, my watching day is usually like halfway through the noon games until like midnight. Like unless like unless honestly unless Florida's playing at noon, I will I will skip the first half of the noon slate because I'm either you know I'm either going to Dan, to our buddy Dan Rubenstein's house to watch the games or. Maybe I went to brunch early and I'm heading home or, you know, I'm, I'm doing some work around the apartment or what have you. So, like, I'll check out of the first half of those noon games before I really, like, try to lock in on the day. Um, but, like I said, I'm going to come back to this. Like, Fox, to Fox's credit, Fox understands the market inefficiency that you're talking about. And that's right. why they're doing this garbage big noon kickoff show, blah, 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 that's not going to work. Um, but that they are seeing that and saying, right. let's program against noon and make it a whole day. Um, 
But the problem is these games aren't going to be on Fox. These aren't no. these aren't the big noon kickoff Fox level games we're talking about. We're talking about Oregon State and Cal. Uh, Pitt, Penn State. I'm stretching now into week three. I'm trying to find the best example of this. It's, it's yeah, it's pretty terrible. Well, just no, no, not even that. Just go through the Pac-12. Go to the Pac-12. I don't know if you necessarily here's here's my biggest issue with this. I don't know if flexing into the morning is going to solve any of the issues that you're ostensibly doing this for. So that that was what I was going to say. What do you, what do you think the Pac-12 is actually trying? What what do you think they're actually trying to solve with with uh with 10 a.m. Pacific time? They're probably trying to eliminate disappearing on the on the primetime end, which I don't necessarily think is going to happen because you're not going to flex any of the strong games in there, right? That's what we just, I mean, they're, they're not going to put the Oregon-Washington game at 9 or 10 a.m. local time. So the few bullets that they have, they're going to keep where, where they're at, which I assume without even looking, and I don't know who gets the rights this year, Oregon-Washington being probably like the best game on the uh, best conference game on the schedule this year is that fair to say just off the top of my head yeah basically unless utah okay. really comes out of the gate but yes for arguments purposes let's say that yeah okay or even like uh stanford usc in week two which is a reliably good september conference game it's always in week two three like around there um those games are not going to kick off at nine or ten local time they're gonna you're still gonna have to plan a flag with those and you're still gonna have to you're probably in the in the 230 slot on fox maybe you get flex in a prime time depending on the situation so what are we talking about? Here? So Again, I'm looking. I'm looking. Okay, so I've got the Pac-12 schedule keyed up for week for week four. Week four, September 20th is the Friday night. Utah and USC play on the Friday night on FS1. Right, that's one game gone. Washington, who's your your biggest, well, one of your biggest draws in your biggest second biggest TV market, um, they play BYU, so they're at a conference game. That's probably gone. I'd imagine ESPN will play that something. Uh, Cal is playing Ole Miss. That's another out of conference game, so that's gone. So right now you're looking at three conference games on Saturday, September 21st: Colorado, Arizona State, Oregon, Stanford, UCLA, Washington State. Colorado and Arizona State can't kick off at 10 a.m. We've already said why. It's in Tempe. Oregon and Stanford is a big-ticket item. You're probably putting that on ESPN. You're not going to waste it. So then you have UCLA-Washington State on Pac-12 networks? Or ESPN takes that, too, and doesn't put it at 10 a.m.? Like, that's what I think we're, we're, like, as you really start to, like, go through the weeks, like, go through these schedules, it's like... What are you actually going to put there? Yeah. By the way, they have really nice coverage to open the season. I might argue that they have, short of the SEC, the best um, the best scheduling. If you if you if such a thing as like I am a Pac-12 football purist exists, you get a Week Zero game in primetime with Arizona and Hawaii. You get a great Thursday night game to open Week One. Uh, you got UCLA at Cincinnati. Uh, ASU plays Kent, but that's going to be on that Thursday night. That's a Pac-12 game, so that's a Pac-12 network game, so that's kind of in the abyss. Friday night is the Holy War. Um, no, Thursday night is the Holy War. I'm sorry. Friday night, so you have the Holy War and you have UCLA Cincinnati essentially back-to-back because they're both on ESPN. Then Friday night, you have – does Colorado Colorado State have a name? Uh, no, I don't know. They just play at the Bronco Stadium. That's literally all I know about it. Bronco Bowl? No, that's not going to work. I'm going to need the dope smoking contingent of this podcast to uh, to work on that, or we'll just ask full cast. Um, and then you have on Friday night you have Oregon State, uh, Okie State. So like you have 
that one's on FS1. So those are actually opposite each other. So if you're watching college football on week one Friday night, chances are you're going to be watching a Pac-12 team. So that's re- we haven't even gotten to Saturday. That's half the damn conference. So I we just, have a really, really nice amount of coverage, and that's before we even get into like Auburn, Oregon. That's right? I yeah. I'm literally so I've just kind of. I've just kind of quick scrolled through kind of a week by week schedule. Um, first and foremost, ESPN's television schedule website is absolutely unusable. Um, but be that as it may, um, like like week seven. First of all, they have a lot of the times they're putting a game on Friday night on FS1 late, so that's a fifth of the games you could also have. You could you could I have still ownership hate that, to. Man. Yeah, I get it. But okay, so October, let's take October 11th. This is week seven. Friday, October 11th, Colorado and Oregon, which I think may be a 10 a.m. candidate, is on Friday night. Okay, that's gone away. Uh, USC plays Notre Dame. That's on NBC. That's going to be primetime because of the matchup that it is. So the three matchups that you have to play with are Washington at Arizona, Washington State at Arizona State, Utah at Oregon State. I mean, out of those three, you're probably putting Washington State, Arizona State on, on in a 10am, in which in October I, I guess the weather wouldn't be too bad. You could probably do that. Um, hopefully Khalil Tate has some star power and would bring some star power to Washington and Arizona. Uh, and you know, I think Utah is actually going to be pretty good this season, or at least weird. Um, you know, that's that at Oregon State game, that may be another 10am game, but it's like, there's not really a lot. It's slim pickings. Um, before I had the warm cinder blocks of life attached to my feet, um, I was a young single man and I would routinely go out on Saturday nights. We would go out for the last shift of like Pac-12 games living in central time and we would watch those at the bar. I still think you can develop a Saturday night late vibe. I think you would have to work with your network partners, but also let me ask you this. Why have we not, not, this is not a Pac-12 indictment. Why have we given up on Thursdays the way we have? Why I don't know because I remember Thursday when they were. Over. I remember when they were trying to make Thursday a thing. Thursday was a thing. Thursday, I mean, Thursday was Virginia Tech's thing. Stanford and Th- Oregon Thurs- played like some. Yes, I was there on Thursday nights. I was there. I was at the game that was so packed that they had to put like it was me and like three scouts from the Broncos on the roof with the photographers. Uh, Thursday night is a thing. Was well, a thing. I, I mean. I, they're, they're, I know where you're going with the question, and the answer to the question is that not only has the NFL taken it, like it's different than just the NFL has taken Thursday night. The NFL has taken Thursday night, they've put it on Fox, and they've given Fox attractive games. That's that's, tough, that's the difference. That's yeah, the whole I, difference with the Thursday night I, thing. I'm willing. I'm willing to counter program, whereas no one else in the in the sports world is, and I think that's the biggest. Yeah, but problem, they, so. you're you're not counter programming against Eagles, Packers, or Rams, Seahawks, or here's Giants, Patriots. It's not. Here's how you're counter programming. What time does that game kick off? Eight. Okay. So give me a staggered two hours and put a Pac-12 game of mediocre quality on Thursday night instead of 9 a.m. local time on Saturday or throwing it into the 5 like the, the five o'clock Eastern abyss on, on the actual Saturday when no one's going to pay attention to it. Yeah, man, these are like, I, I'm looking at the Thursday night schedule right now. These are like reliably good NFL games, or at least attractive. And, and that, yeah, but then go scroll through. So here's this is what pisses me off to no degree. I, I can't understand this. 
they don't even play a game, a college football game on Thursday, September twelfth, because that's the, that's the kickoff of the season. That's right? oh, that is whatever or uh, Bears so just, and Packers. That just started a couple years ago. Yeah, then where they do the, the only, sexy kickoff game on Thursday night. Right. The only Thursday game after that is on September nineteenth. You have Houston at Tulane, which is they're burning off that AAC t- uh, TV contract throughout this entire thing because the next week is Navy at Memphis, and then ESPNU has Delaware State, North Carolina A and T. All you're doing I'm is on, killing inventory. I'm on. I'm on the LSU football and I just control F for Thursday. October 3rd is Temple and ECU. October yeah. 10th is Syracuse and NC State and a few HBCU games. Right. So I think, I okay, first of all, I will like that there is actually a reliable uh, kind of HBCU thing going on here. Um, but with the Thursday night, but yeah, it's, it's, you're, you're essentially, you're seeding Thursday night. It's, there is no other way to look at it. So if I'm the Pac-12, even against quality inventory from the NFL, I think you, because of your West Coast ability, you can actually take one of your conference games counter-program late. The problem is this. What do you, you start at 10 o'clock? I don't know. I've, I'm I'm not fighting for East Coast time and mind share if I'm if I'm putting Oregon State and Arizona on. Like it's I'm, I'm not saying put put Stanford Cal or or Washington Oregon or like UC, USC UCLA. I'm saying take your mid to low tier conference inventory and put it on Thursday night two hours staggered against the NFL. The problem is this: <laughs> they they can't do it because the way that you would do this is that you would pro- proliferate this and create a viewing pattern through your own damn conference network and it's not available anywhere that's the this thing why because you, you can't put it on fox because because fox isn't going to bite on that fox won't do it and then you're not going to put it on espn because i don't think espn wants to fight that either which is why they've seated thursday night all these games are on espn 2 or you on thursday nights most of them i think are on you hmm awful it's absolutely awful um okay so you had mentioned to me you wanted to talk about this so you're going to stump and this i swear to god this is the last pac 12 thing we're talking about you want to actually stump for this like explain to people what a pool reporter is uh so basically it's it's something that um if you ever cover like the final four or whatever let's say there is a controversial call or even like a uh, a call that you just want clarification on. Uh, the National Basketball Writers Association of America has like different regional like presidents or whatever. Um, and so basically what happens is if there is a crappy call at the end of a Final Four game, for instance, they will send one reporter to the to the official's locker room and they will get a statement from the officials about why a call came the way it does the term pool reporter actually comes from like the white house press corps where there will be like for like white house events or whatever there will be one reporter who goes to a some luncheon or some bs and they will send out a pool report to everybody in the white house press list um that that you know doesn't want to go or can't go or what have you and it'll have like basic details of the event that's where the term pool reporter comes from so the pac-12 is to what i understand gonna do basically this it was one of the recommendations in the um in whatever officiating report that they had after the fiasco last season um but What I brought up was that I think that when you do something like this, this 9 a.m. thing, um, it overshadows what I think is actually a fairly good idea, which is to get 
at least some measure of accountability for the hashtag Pac-12 refs. Now, the NBA takes this the NBA takes this to a whole nother level where they have like the last two minute reports for the playoff games where they go like call by call and, and say what, what happened. Like the referee association has like its own Twitter account. That's like kind of confrontational also. Um, What's the handle? It's, I, I literally think it's NBA refs, um, but they will like, they'll clap back. Um, so yeah, so basketball is a little bit ahead of the curve there. Um, but yeah, I, I think if they actually implement it, I think in actually the SEC is doing a similar thing with the Twitter account too, which is where they'll they'll cop to whatever happened or that they, they at least are saying that they will. Or deactivate I think, by October. Yeah. I, I think it's a good idea to at least have some measure or modicum of kind of officiating accountability the statements are going to be canned they're going to be bland they're going to be non-controversial they will leave us all wanting more and wondering what was left on the table in these comments but they're a step i guess i think at this point that this the early kickoff thing i kind of regret i was i was actually out on assignment papn assignment specifically and I was at Mountain West when I feel like I should have been at Pac-12 just to watch the last throws of the of the Larry Scott era because even people who used to talk about this privately, like Greg Byrne, the athletic director at Alabama, who's now uh, who was now at Alabama, was at Arizona, and you know uh, I'm trying to think, Bill Moose, who was at um, Nebraska, was formerly at Washington State. Like everyone who used to just sort of gripe about this man semi-privately to the media is now just out with their criticism. Obviously it helps that they change jobs, but the, the disdain for him is so strong that I, there really is no salvageable way to save him as president. What you would have to do is you'd have to have, you'd have to have at least fire him, right? He at least has to go. There has to be some substantial executive shakeup. And then you could almost keep doing what you're going to do because the, the the news flash here is that they're so locked in with the the business agreements that they've made with the Pac-12 network, with the lease on the giant building in, in San Francisco. Like none of these problems are really going to solve themselves. None of these problems are going to be fixed anyway. The next person probably won't even be able to fix them. So you kind of have to do the ceremonial thing because my guy's out there like staying in the $7,000 a night uh hotel suites when he goes to las vegas like you can be bad at your job but i think in college sports you can be bad at your job but you have to be the right kind of fake humble to do it i think you have to keep your head down amongst your peers and that's what he didn't do like you can be an asshole but if you're if you're right amongst your peers and in this case it's your athletic directors it doesn't really matter like jim delaney you know he won no favor with anyone. He was just really good at his job, and he was intimidating. Mike Slide so was I a think grandfather the, yeah, turned it, gangster. That's what I was gonna say. I was gonna say it's. I think a like it's so dumb that this is what it boils down to. But I think a lot of what a lot of Larry Scott's issues are. Okay, I. <sighs> Because I think about this a lot. I think Larry Scott got gassed up by the royal we in the media as being this innovator and all this kind of stuff. He's taking the Pac-12 into a new day and like da-da-da-da-da. Well, hey, guess what? At the end of the day, he's just another suit. And he's just another caricature of a suit of a rich guy who's going to lead this into this new businessy era. That's what he's actually doing. And mm-hmm. so because I think he was gassed up in such a way and then turned out to be a paper tiger... 
He's there. There is no way to go with his image. He's like the Mike Slive. Mike Slive got built up by the Royal We in media into this like congenial, like grandfather type guy who, you know, has the best interests of everyone at heart and like da 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 da. But behind the scenes was putting his foot down and making sure the different factions stayed the hell in line. Um, There's also one key element here, too. Those, the everyone but Larry Scott has the perception of making their constituency a ton of money versus a lot of money. The Pac-12 is healthier than it ever has been on paper. The problem is all of college sports is comparative analytics and and they're they're not growing at the same rate that, that their competitors are. And I don't even think that shit would matter if not for all of this dovetailing with a bad USC and no other team in there to pick up the slack. Yeah, Maybe that's even like, if Washington scores a few more touchdowns against Alabama, literally they have the problem is there's no foothold right now at all. Yeah, that I like if I'm Larry Scott, it, I literally have to get a USC Tommy Trojan tattooed on my chest. Like I have to get USC good. There's like the, it is the quickest and easiest way to solve every single issue if USC wins 10 games this year. Yeah, but that shit's not happening. I mean, like, I'm going to talk about this with Bud in the next segment, but, like, I mean, it, it's very in vogue right now to pick Fresno to to win that game in week one, let alone USC being in any kind of national conversation except for, you know, the next coach they hire. Yep, and that's your big problem. Like, what do you hang your hat on? Like, you hang, like, what the Pac-12 hangs its hat on, on Oregon, which is questionably cool, and a Washington that is not exactly the friendliest face in town to coverage of its program. Therefore, it's kind of a little hard to put a human face on Washington. A lot of us think Chris Peterson's a swell guy, but like, how often does anybody really hear from Chris Peterson? Pretty much never. I mean, I doubt that any... I, I don't... <laughs> I honestly don't think the conference has the the ability to force out any kind of invective. Like they, they're I, not going to tell Washington to suddenly be to be chummy with the national media. If and by the way, this isn't the year for Washington to carry the banner anyway. We think it's the year for Oregon. That's and um, and so I think like if they could get something else to engineer goodwill, like if they can get another Colorado thing, like two years ago when Colorado won however many games it was and was looking really strong, like that was yeah. fun, that was cool. Um, I think Utah could be that guy or that that team right now, because um, apparently Kyle Whittingham's telling everybody and their mother that they have the best defensive line that they've ever had. So you know if Utah kind of comes out of nowhere and starts eight zero, well okay, you got something fun because you know college game day shows up on Utah's campus, it's a fun scene, all that kind of stuff. Um, if they go eight and zero and they're up against like a Washington or an Oregon or what have you, um, in mid October, like you've got something cool there, but like you're just kind of like grasping and hoping. Whereas, like you know, other conferences don't necessarily have to have a playoff team or the other big, the other four, I should say, don't have to necessarily have a playoff team this next year to maintain a relevance. You went to um, AAC Media Days because I trained you well. Um, I'm sure the food was fine. Oh, you can, you can wonderful. Tell me all about it. Yeah. Um, did they put you on like a TV thing? What was the thing that we were all laughing about? Okay, so they they have like a live stream. I think they I think it's Facebook Live um, or something. But they have a live. Wait, stream. Hang on, hang on, hang on. I like that you were on there, but you weren't sure 
exactly what you were on. Yeah, look here, baby. I got a pretty face. You just slap this thing on any screen, and you know what I'm saying? The views come. And you'll apparently agree to it. The views come. Um, I, Look, all I know is I got off the golf course, and I got an email from somebody at the AAC. It was like, hey, we want you on the live show at... Uh, at like 7.30, and so I literally had a drink in my hand, walked up to the set, accidentally put it on the table that's in front of us, um, but uh, a friend of the program, Haley Alton, hosts that show, and so I was kind of doing her favor um, and being on the show with her, um, but yeah, that that whatever live stream it is that they have, that was what it was. What kind of, uh, what kind of Yukon angst did we get there? You know the funny thing? It's like pretty much everybody there is like, God, goodbye, good riddance. Like everybody's Wait, like, good now, what do you mean by everybody? Like coaches, sh- players, or uh, a lot of? Uh, I'm just kind of. This is a straw poll of like media members. A lot of straw poll media members are like, you know, whatever they can go like. Be, but th- so this is the thing that the AAC is going to have. I don't know if a problem is the right term, but so UConn is gone, and now the AAC, that AAC, which again is the old Big East in I guess in name or whatever has there is no ties anymore to the northeast the aac's office is moving from providence rhode island to dallas in i think it's next year or in two years um and a lot of there was a lot of hand-wringing um by media members who like to play golf and eat lobster that the aac media days is moving from this chummy resort in newport rhode island which which is where it is right now to some soulless office park in in dallas or the star which is where the cowboys practice and where like conference usa has their own media days there's a lot of uh kind of these like northeast so big 12 yeah there's a there's a lot of these like northeast media types that only come because yukon's there like I played in a scramble group with uh, UConn's play-by-play guy. Like he's not going to come anymore. Like UConn's not in the conference. Um, so it, like the UConn in the conference or UConn leaving the conference, I think has created. It's it's not an identity crisis for the league. I think it's an identity opportunity for the league. But well, they, they have need to, to rebrand con- totally. Yeah, exactly. They they have I mean, to so rebrand the first, totally, like, and the now first they can. Year I went there. It was it was like. I would say 50% of however many, whatever, I don't know what the number is, like 50% of the media that was there were chasing like Bob Diaco because of where it was. Like it's in Rhode Island. Whatever whatever like marginal interest that local media has in college football in that part of the country, they're going to drive down to Providence. They're going to do a UConn thing. And that's kind of it, right? Yeah, I want to like- honestly I- think- I, I, I think, wanna, you, well, I, I think Diaco got a lot of attention just because he was the former DC at Notre Dame. Yeah, and, and like, like this is the thing. So like, there's not there as you can guess, there's not a lot of Tulsa beat writers from this thing. Like I like the Tampa Bay Times didn't send its beat writer last year, but they did send Joey Knight this year. I, I ran into him. Like there's not a lot of kind of the far flung. Uh, you know, the far-flung outposts of the league aren't necessarily there. I think there was a Houston Chronicle beat writer this year. But, like, it's it's a lot of, like, Hartford radio guys. Seriously. Like, that's the type of media at this event because it's, A, close. I got on a train from New York City. Um, It's really close to everybody in the Northeast. And UConn's there. So there's a plug or there, there's a there's a pull. But UConn's not there anymore, so who's going to actually go from the media well, contingent have to get rid- I mean, if it look, stays they, where it is? Because they're gonna have not to get, easy to they're get They're going to have to get rid of it. They're going to have to get rid of it, and it's actually going to help the foot. Like, all, no one listening to this has gone to this stupid event. So 
to like the American just needs to go ahead and refocus completely. This would actually be a really good branding opportunity. As much as we love the American on this podcast, it, it really is like not that great a name. Let's go ahead and burn it down. Keep intact what I think has become really, really good football that I would actually legitimately argue on behalf of. I mean, now we've gone through the phase of like the Tom Herman Houston. Um, I would say both coaches, honestly, at UCF. Um, you know, uh, Taggart's USF never really showed up comparably in the same way, but like that gets into that other subgenre of the AAC where there's so many amazing coaches that have rolled through there. Go ahead. I hate to say it. You, need, you probably need to go to the Dallas suburbs and re-engineer yourselves as the the pesky, like dangerously good football conference. I think that's, the, I think that's the, your ceiling. I think the easiest way to do it is. I think the easiest way to do it is you do you lean hard into the big city thing. Honestly, every single now with UConn gone, the only rural school is ECU. Um, I think every every single other school is in a city. And I think you lean kind of into the Metro Conference thing um, or Metro Conference Reborn. The one thing that I think benefits you at this point in time is everybody in the league now on the football side, save Wichita State, on, like pretty much only cares about football. Like you've got like you've got a bunch of football centric schools that at least kind of pretend to care about football first, last and always. Would you like to would you like to give out your home number for the Memphis fans or, or? <laughs> I, like, uh, Mi- other than, yes, I would say other than Memphis, it is now a football centric uh, conference, which is what it needs to be to survive. I think Memphis is the one school that would actually be okay straddling the that classification because they've still got a ways to go to be more relevant in basketball. From what I am told, I am not a basketball writer. Well, um, Penny, Hart, well, never mind. There's there's a chance here. By the way, I didn't buy for a second that they're not looking at at, at picking somebody up. They're going to pick somebody up as a twelfth. Yeah, I mean, you have to. It may be now. Look, you may be pulling from FCS or something, and and it takes three or four years to transition. They're pulling somebody up. I'm they trying to. Th- to. I'm trying to like who who fits in the mold that could make sense. Like, wait, they're not going to pluck. Like, they're not going to grab UMass. I'm I'm thinking about independence. They're not going to grab no. UMass. No, and and a lot of people have asked me about Army. Um, Army don't no. want to join a league. Well, what what Army remembers, and as they really should, I mean, Army, look, my take on the service academies is this. There is X, there are X amount of service academy players to create 1.33 good FBS football teams, okay? Because mathematically, that's what it shakes out to be. Maybe 1.5 in a given year, where you had a dominant Navy team that, like, beats Notre Dame and wins 10 games, and you had, like, an Air Force team that wins 7. Right. And then Army was O and whatever. That was that was like a basically fifteen years, right? That paradigm has shifted. Army incre- increased every effort that you can effort in the weird world of academy recruiting. Army did that. But Army's mindful of the fact that even when they joined Conference USA, that's really when the wheels began to fall off. And I mean, I, I talked to I mean, I've talked to Navy's coaching staff. There's a great advantage in recruiting to the American as far as like when it comes down to am I gonna go to Army or Navy? But what they prep for on a weekly basis in terms of like inserting personnel, like you can imagine what it takes to deal with, with the restrictions that come with having basically your entire team be under weight restriction, you know, being enrolled at the Naval Academy and then having to figure out, okay, we're going to go 
We're a triple team. We're going to play a triple team this week. And then we're going to turn around. We're going to play uh, Houston. And then the week after that, we're going to play Tulane in the old offense. And then right after that, we're going to play like a Temple team that basically runs like power. And and then after that, we, oh, we got to get ready for UCF. Like there, it's it's demanding more versatility than I think might be possible. And I think it may may have caught up with Navy finally. And I say that they won their division a couple of years ago. Like it's not like they're a bad football team in the American, but Army knows that they could all they they could do that. But like it's the United States Army, it's the United States Navy. They don't need the television revenue. It doesn't work that way at the academies. So everyone, uh, that was a big thing I was getting on Twitter as we were on hiatus. Was like people were like, oh well, I mean, Army should just join and be perfect. Let me tell you something else. Do you think Houston wants to play Army and Navy every year? Do you think UCF wants to play Army and Navy? Yeah, every given year? what Houston just had to do against Army. Yeah, that was the most quit and ass quitting I've ever seen in a football game, and really, honestly, was was the the kiss of death on on Major Applewhite was just the sheer the sheer quit and ass vibe on the on the sideline. I don't know if it's on YouTube right now. Might be on my YouTube TV. Account, it's on my you YouTube can, TV. I'll tell you that. You can I, go back. I'm like looking through this list though, but like, so literally, who do they add? Like, because I like, so my opinion, honestly, is that they should, I don't know what you do about ECU, but I think you should lean into the big city thing. Um, then then you go s- call Charlotte. That's, I, that's the only team I was going to guess, but like Conference USA is going to want to hold on to them, right? Well, they're going to lose them. I mean, I mean, Conference USA and, and the Sun Belt just flat out have to deal with a, a, an amount of fluidity that, I mean, that, that's just the reality of life. If you want good football right now, like consistent year in year out football, take La Tech, okay, or maybe North Texas. Although I, I you know, you could take Texas, North Texas. You could take North Texas and call it Dallas. Yeah, but North Texas. I mean, North Texas is also a crater of a program. Like they made some really bad hires and did some bad stuff. I mean, honestly, I think if if the Frank Wilson experiment hadn't, I shouldn't call it an experiment. That's kind of a slight. But like if if things had not broke the wrong way a couple ways that they have at utsa i think utsa would be a candidate because it's in the heart of a major city in texas and they love that shit they want the television market what about georgia footprint what what about georgia state too soon uh on paper it makes a ton of sense because when you look at the map when you look at the map that's that's like where they aren't where the american isn't uh, like they don't like have a ton of like wise. pure southeast presence. Yeah, they've got the Floridas, but they're Floridas. I mean, it's possible. Um, I think this conversation inevitably ends up with a potted amalgamation of the Sun Belt and the QSA to survive, even if you're only talking about the American coming in and picking off one program. Because I think any one program that's picked off is going to create a, enough of a reverberation for the schools to start asking kind of big questions. You don't have to stick with the city theme, but I get like I understand the marketing of that. Um, you do have the directional Floridas who generally have worked in tandem. Um, I think with Georgia State, they would they would love the move to try and get a leg up on Georgia Southern specifically. Um, I will say this about those those Floridas moving in tandem. I think UCF is fed the heck up with being compared and locked with USF. Like I so think, they would, that I so think, you, they would block the they would block IU and AU. I mean, I mean, maybe, but if I'm UCF, I don't want anything else in Florida because I'm already bigger in my britches than USF. 
USF has never won a conference title. I've quote unquote air quotes won a national championship. Hi, Orlando. All right. What about this? Do you go to BYU with the conditional, uh, almost Notre Dame style participation schedule? Football only, six games? Something like that. Yeah, because, I mean, at the end of the day, that creates a national kind of a, a national kind of kind of fervor um or at least opens up your fan base a little bit nationally like i you know i may be out on a limb here but i'm gonna imagine in texas you know there's a pocket of of byu folks like in Houston, no i can tell like, you i mean i can tell you for a fact having covered nothing but byu road games in my career the way that the the way that the Mormon fan base works and the and the distribution of LDS in the in the country like it works perfectly. Yeah, and I'd imagine it's a pretty easy hop, skip, and a jump to get to Salt Lake City from Dallas, Houston. Like I imagine you're you're probably connecting through Dallas or Houston to get out to Salt Lake City from you, like you can get North the Provo. Carolina. You can get the Provo. Okay, I mean SEC teams have been out there on weeknights to play games. The problem is yeah, going Florida to be, State went out there. Like if you can get there from Tallahassee, yeah. you can get there from damn near anywhere. The problem is going to be. Do you want someone that has half a foot in? And then also, I think the issue with BYU itself. Now, I think the sell to BYU is going to be more of a coming to terms type situation that you are not going to get into a Power Five conference because the only one that was even remotely going to consider you has moved on. And and honestly, no one I have spoken with uh, during that Big 12 run initially, especially the other schools that were jockeying against BYU, but then also the people out West is... They don't want to align themselves with potential problems within the church. It's 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 brutal. It's true. Um, it's not to pass any indictment of that of of you know the Mormon faith specifically. Um, I think there would be hangups for any faith based institution at this point. It's also why Liberty just sort of lives in limbo. It's why I haven't mentioned Liberty at all. Yeah, in the I, context was, I was of the really AAC. really comfortable with absolutely not mentioning Liberty. I've been told. I mean, look, I was told by three people, three people, three different institutions in the Sun Belt two years ago that the Sun Belt wouldn't consider Liberty. So, now would that change if the Sun Belt got raided? If three or four teams left, yes, I think it would. I think they'd suddenly get very chummy with one another. But given their druthers, no one's going to take a faith based faith based institution right now, especially the Pac twelve. You're going to have BYU and Cal coexisting on, on an <laughs> annual basis. Like it's just that's not going to work. The problem for BYU. It's a pretty big problem. They have a lot of football contracts. And I don't think that they would go about voiding near-term football one-and-one, two-and-one, two-and-two deals to go to the American. I don't think it makes sense for anybody involved. So they're pretty much booked up solid for the next four seasons. They have at least 10 conference. They have at least conference. They have at least 10 contracted games per year. Um, and they're decent. You know, like we've, we've beat this to death on the show before. Like it's... If you ran the table, would you be in the conversation? Probably. Would you get in? No. Like it would be, it would be similar to a Houston or a UCF type situation. But um, you would honestly have to wait until somewhere around twenty four or twenty five for them to even have the, the schedule space to get into the American. Yeah, they uh, they don't. So that's have, why I think ultimately they're they out. don't have room until twenty four. Yeah. By the way. They're trying. You can see it on their schedules. 23, it looks like, is their best schedule, by the way, because they have Tennessee, Virginia, Arkansas, Houston, Boise, USC, and Stanford all in the same year. In if fact... They, I mean, if they ran that, you'd have to let them in. If I were to go back and look at 15 or 20 years worth of BYU schedules, especially considering the Mountain West time, 
that might be whatever metric you want to go by S&P plus or FBI or whatever. That might be the strongest weighted schedule they've ever had. I mean, this is close to a bad. P5 as you can get this year in bad. Yeah, I know. But the problem is, it's like this is why I, I don't think it would ever come together with the American because BYU still keeps like an, an, an inch above a G5 schedule, but not a considerable P5 schedule for playoff. Like, OK, so this year, uh, Holy War, they're at Tennessee, USC, Washington, uh, at Toledo, at UCF or at USF. I'm sorry. Boise at home, at Utah State, Liberty, Idaho State, UMass, and San Diego State. By the way, one of the things that they growls about privately, but no one will ever go on the record, is that BYU really, really struggles in late October into November to get games scheduled because that's when everybody's in conference play. And so this is why your November is Liberty, Idaho State, UMass, and San Diego State. That's a good schedule. Um, If you were to run that schedule, that means that you would have beaten Utah and Washington. So you would need essentially <laughs> two of the top three teams in the Pac-12 to, I guess, ball out, and then Tennessee to have an unlikely eight-win season. Uh, you would have beaten USC, who may or may not crater this year, and then probably your next quality win after that would be Boise. Or so, Well, yeah, you beat Boise, you beat USF. Yeah. I'm telling you, the biggest problem for BYU, and this is how dumb the system is, but it's it's reality. Is let's say they win all those games. Everything I just talked about is before, uh, before mid October. So the last real game that they would have to impress the nation would be October nineteenth. Then it's Utah State, Liberty, Idaho State, UMass, San Diego. Like you're going to go down the stretch as an undefeated team with nothing that you can really capture anyone's attention with. Well, see, see, this is a little bit different though with BYU. Is look, if let's let's pretend they're eight and zero, they've done the eight and zero thing. If they've done the eight and zero thing in a convincing fashion, it means that they're going to have something that a a G five or a proto G five, whatever you want to call them, needs to to catch the attention. It means that Zach Wilson played really really well at quarterback. And the way he plays, if you watch him on tape, he's like I I joked around on the full cast a couple of days ago and I called him the Mormon Johnny Manziel. He's a guy who like yeah, he can sling it, but when he runs, he's like this short little sawed off white dude that like runs with his hair on fire and it's this like oh crap, oh, crap, oh, crap, oh, crap, oh, crap and he's ran by you uh into right. the end zone. Like he's that kind of guy. So I say that to say He's a guy who could catch the attention, and if we're saying BYU is good enough to to go eight and zero, I'm gonna say they're good enough to torch the hell out of Liberty, Idaho State, and UMass by like sixty, and that's the type of thing that it would need to really catch the attention. All right, Richard Johnson, we started this segment by um, taking the hipster logic that making fun of the Pac-12 was counterintuitive and unnecessary, and now we're picking BYU to go undefeated this year by beating Washington. USC and Utah. Do you use hipster logic only because I live in Brooklyn? I used to be cool. Okay, uh, that was young Richard Johnson. Uh, he will be joining me every Thursday as we go towards the season. Every Thursday in the season, I should say, um, for what we used to affectionately call the tasting menu. We're kind of we're workshopping that title right now. But uh, young Richard will be uh, doing a lot of the journalisming and a lot of the analysis and good football stuff with me. As will uh, preeminent peak Florida man, Bud Elliott, who is about to join me now. Bud, you might know him already uh, at Twitter. He is uh, at Bud Elliott. By the way, that's two L's and two T's. It's okay if you forget that. I forget it all the time, and I've worked with Bud for like eight years. At Bud Elliott 3 
on Twitter. Um, he was in charge of recruiting at SB Nation. He has also jumped over to Banner Society with us. Um, he founded Tomahawk Nation, knows more about Florida State than you do, knows more about Florida football in general, be it preps or college or how to submerge a boat that may or may not have bodies and, you know, illegally harvested organs into the bottom of a swamp. He is Florida man, lawyer, recruiting expert, generally nice human being, Bud Elliott. Bud Elliott, um, it's about a month until the season. What does your gambling slate look like for week one? Uh, week one, the, the lines at most of the offshores have already been out, right? So right. Like, we're, we're going to have a, a pretty cool thing that we can talk about uh, coming up fairly soon where you'll actually get to see me uh, make my picks live. Uh, I actually think the week one is the maybe going to be the least eventful show as far as the, the live action because everybody really? – well, we, just because everybody has already had a chance to fire on these lines for uh, for like sixty days before before the games actually start, right? Um, so the as a as a neophyte gambler, right? Just someone who will talk about a line as it relates to what I think will happen in the game, but not someone who's ever professionally gambled. I've always noticed that you you seem to find big discrepancies in week one. Yeah, there, there's definitely week one is more of. Uh, like an information battle, right? Are, are you paying close attention to fall camp? Did you notice an injury here? Have you heard something that this team maybe matches up really well with right. this team, et cetera? Uh, the rest of it, the rest of the season, I think that stuff still matters, but you don't have that fall camp data. You have the game day data where everybody sees that. Um, so that's sort of already kind of factored into the line. And a lot of the best work I do is is on that first day, on that Sunday when those openers actually come out. And I would strongly suggest to anybody who is looking to have success wagering college football to pop openers. They'll take $500 per game at a lot of these offshores. If you're a person who needs to lay down more than $500 a game, you probably do not need to watch my live gambling show, although you should do so anyway. (laughs) But, I mean, you know, if if you're laying down down a dime a game, you you probably have a bankroll close to six figures. You know, what we're talking about may not be that relevant to you. But what these books do – it's all kind of a race to get their lines out there first, right? There's a bit of a PR element to this. They, they want to, hey, we're first. We had our lines out. Oh, the media starts talking about these lines. It kind of gets free advertising on this. And in turn, they will take what they consider smaller bets, right? 250, 500 shots on these lines when they're kind of soft, you know, okay. and they're kind of being almost like uh, you ever seen a blacksmith kind of, kind of pull the iron out of the fire and, and, and he's hammering it until later in the week, they will take an like pretty drastically raise their maximum bet limit. Some of these shops will take 10 grand on a game on, on a Thursday. Right. But there's no way in heck are they going to take that on a Sunday. But if you okay, so, are a sharp so guy, you can make some money on Sundays. But if I'm just some random, if I'm someone and let's say I've got a thousand bucks squirreled away from the significant other, what have you, it's not, it's not uh, assigned to any bill and it's August and I'm really excited about the football season, right? So I was just in Vegas. A lot of people go to Vegas. Now, of course, you can go to sports books across the country. You know, here in Nashville, people drive down to Mississippi now to do this. Um, I wanted, I've got about a thousand bucks to play with. All right. And I've never really done this before. I know what a line is. I know, you know, I know how to make a single bet, right? And I think this applies to the large majority of our audience. What do you advise to do with that money in week one? So in week one, as far as which games I want to pick? 
it could be that, but it could also be like, you know, a lot of people, what I, what I hear about most commonly is that people are like, you know what? I'm going to gamble on college football this year. Sure. And what they do is they don't know what they're doing. They get in, they, they put a bunch of games together, right? They try and assemble some sort of parlay. They get completely confused and they lose whatever, you know, the whole kitty was by week two and they're just out. That's it. They're pissed off about it. Or they, or they just pull more money on the bank and keep trying. So if you are, if this is your sort of like week zero approach, what do you tell someone who says, hey, I want to gamble all season long. I'm not trying to get rich off this, but I do want to have fun and be engaged as a gambler throughout the entire college football season. Sure. So my answer here is going to be kind of sad. Um, okay. If you have $1,000, if you are really good at picking games, and I'm talking about like 55% against the spread or slightly north of there, I just plug that into what's called a Keller Criterion calculator, which helps okay. you assess how big of a bet you should make on each game relative to what what your expected win probability is, okay? So I just plugged in 55% at, at, at the standard odds using a, a, a fractional Kelly here. It spit out $14 a game. So this machine right here, this calculator is telling me if you are really good at picking games, mm-hmm. if all you have is $1,000, in order to survive the variance, and you will go on some runs where you win or lose 20 or 30 games in a row, yeah. You should bet $14 per game max. Okay. And explain this calculator real fast. So essentially it, it just takes a lot, a lot of uh, a lot of runs through potential variance at your win rate and your bankroll to see hey, what what is the what is the optimal amount to bet on a game relative to how how likely you think you are to win that bet uh, to where like you won't go broke. You could certainly bet a lot more on those games, uh, but the the variance eventually will likely swamp you to where you get on that run where you've lost. Like, let's say, hey, I'm going to bet $50 a game, right? Okay, that doesn't mm-hmm. seem like that much for a $1,000 bankroll. What happens if you lose 20 games in a row? You're you're bust. Because that's just not it. Okay. The, most professionals, I would say, are betting between 1% and 2% of their bankroll on most of their wagers. There's some where if they know something is just clearly really off, they might go 5 or 6%. But uh, that would be my, my first advice. You can be really good at picking games, and still go broke because you are not managing your bankroll appropriately. Okay, so where most people start is exactly what I'm doing right now, which is I've got the lines pulled up for week one, and there's stuff that I, as an informed college football professional journalist person, writer guy, where I say, man, wow, really? Like, I would take this. So, for instance, um, I really like Tulane. They're getting two points at home against FIU. All right? I'm just going – I'm scrolling. This is just sort of a casual observation – uh, I like Utah getting seven points on the road at BYU. And uh, I'm trying to find one that I feel extremely confident God, about. Uh, Utah is giving. Yes, giving. Sorry. Yeah. Um, shows my neophyte nature here. But, you know, I, I can go through here and I can find this. Mississippi State, right? They're a 22 and a half point favorite and they're on the road. I still like them. So let's say I feel just overly insanely confident about one of these games. You're saying don't lay down 200 bucks. Not unless you have some kind of insider information here, uh, which, okay. like, like you know, if you happen to know that that uh, uh, Mississippi State's opponent's quarterback is out or something like that, and that's not already news, then maybe it, that was a hypothetical. By the way, that was purely uh, a hypothetical. Correct. Right. Yeah. Basically, what you have to do as as a gambler, you may like a game for a certain reason, and what you have to figure out is first, is this information already reflected in the line? The vast. And what do you mean by okay? Cases, so, so, what does that mean specifically? Sure. So let's say that uh, you think that we'll, we'll just take this. We'll, you think Utah has a really good defensive line. Okay. Mm-hmm. I agree. 
Do we think the Vegas odds makers and the people who make these lines for a living know that and agree with us? Probably, right? We can assume. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So we can assume that Utah having a really good D line is already factored into that game. You may have some inf- a piece of information that nobody else knows, and then you could assume that that was not already factored into the game. And then in that case, yeah, you may want to go nuts on a, on a ball game uh, and, and lay down a, a, a huge wager. Uh, assuming that the information you have is not like super proprietary and, and secret, it's yeah. probably already reflected in the line. The difference you will likely have with the bookmaker's line is to the extent that you think the, your edge on that game, the reason why you like that game, matters. So you, Godfrey, might say, all right, well, I really like Utah laying the points against BYU because the D-line, and I guess I just like Utah more than I like BYU. Yeah, definitely. Overall, more talented team. I think more cohesion, uh, you know, good quarterback returning, uh, way more talented on defense. So, basically, so I like everything just, in that situation. There's just degrees to this thing, okay? So you, they think Utah by seven. You may think Utah by 10, so that would be that would represent kind of three points of value, right? If you think Utah win by 10 and, and they think Utah win by seven, then that would probably be uh, something that you would want to bet. It also brings me up to another point here. If you're going to do this and assuming you're playing offshore or even, you know, brick and mortar, I pulled up a couple sites here that have Utah laying five. I would much rather have to give five points than I, than I would rather, have, you know, they have to give seven points. Sure. So, so you want to hunt around. You don't deposit all your shop. money into one book. Okay. So, so that brings me to the second point is where you do this and, and how you do it, which is what most people, there's a, there's still an unease that people have about the offshore books. I think the, the casual gambler, because they think their money is just going to get sucked up into some random website. There'll be no recourse. Is that true? Should I, if I, if I wanted to say, Hey, I'm going to bet offshore. Like I don't, like I live in Nashville. I don't want to drive three hours to Mississippi, probably four to get to a place where I can actually find a book. And I just want to sit at home and do this. What would I do? So hypothetically, of course, like assuming your state allowed it um, and you're going to pay taxes on, all, on, on your winnings, which you're certainly going to make and, and all that stuff. There's a couple of books out there that I think you can go to these review sites that are pretty reputable. Um, okay. Back in the day, like let's say 2004, there were so many of these dudes who would go down to Costa Rica with, with a couple million and a laptop and, and set up a book and they were very fly by night. There are some pretty reputable books out there now who are going on 15, 20 years of, of consistent management and consistent payouts. And then their business model is not take your money and, and disappear. Their business model is to be good at bookmaking and uh, and, and to take your money that way. Um, so you can find those pretty easily on, on the, on the, uh, the Sportsbook Review sites. I don't, I don't think we want to actually endorse one here. They're not going to pay us. Um, gotcha. But uh, yeah, I would, I would go into two or three different books. Most of them uh, want you to use crypto. Some of them you can use a credit card on, but uh, but crypto seems to be the best way there. Uh, why is it now, so? Heard. Why why would you not use a credit card? Uh, first of all, most of them will not pay you back via a credit card. So then you have this issue of having to wait for like a paper check um, ah. or other things like that. The credit card also they'll charge a fee to get in, and uh, importantly here, your bank might flag it, and then your your money gets all tied up, and yeah. Okay. Good to know. All right. So crypto's the way to go. Crypto's the way to go for that. Florida man endorsing cryptocurrency. We're <laughs> off to a rollicking start, my friend. All right. Looking at these week one lines, um, I know they've been out for a while. I know they're starting to change a little bit. 
there's definitely stuff that again from the novice sports writer side of this and not to professional gambler i there's a lot of instant opinions i can find on this thing what to you stands out right away i actually really like that utah laying five at byu um okay. we were listening to sirius x the other day and cal whittingham said something to the effect of like this is probably the best and deepest defensive line we've ever had and he's not a guy who normally says things like that right like he's kind of reserved and so that's definitely a thing there uh that, that i would look so at you so as a gambler you take that and and actually sort of factor that into your decision making on gambling in in the preseason if a coach says something that is uh like an extreme endorsement or if he says a quote that is maybe concerning right uh yeah I, i'm, I'm going to factor that in to my power ranking of that team now now i i keep a a literal like numerical power ranking of these teams and it's basically a combination of several different power rankings and then i make manual adjustments to it based on knowledge of teams that i think might not be fully uh fully represented in that like power ranking system number okay so i make a couple manual adjustments not drastic ones unless you have a situation where you remember when rogers got hurt last year for unlv um and it turned out like he was basically their entire team. Right. We had, in order to make these lines make sense after about a week, we had to manually adjust, I think like a full touchdown for, for Rodgers being out, which is a really extreme adjustment at the college level. When you look at like USC, this is just, I mean, this is somewhat arbitrary, but also it feeds into something that I'm always suspicious about because I get a lot of people coming up and saying, well, you're a sports writer, so you should know, like, what do you think about this? And when we get into these, like, almost meme-type situations over the offseason where Fresno State, really good football team in the Mountain West, uh, won their conference. We all like what Jeff Tedford's doing. I believe in the functionality of, like, what that kind of Fresno State team can be, and I think he's figured that back out. Like, they're like old-school Pat Hill. Simultaneously, of course, what have we talked about all offseason with USC, right? That they're going to fire their coach. They have uncertainty with you know a new offensive coordinator. They didn't get Kingsbury. They had him for five minutes. We don't know. I you know I've talked to coaches said, hey, it's not the same kind of defensive line it used to be. Da da da. And so all this feeds into, I think the casual fan going, oh, ten and a half. Well, I like Fresno here as the underdog. Like I think they can. I think they can beat that. That that those are the games where I actually kind of freak out and back away, and I don't want to touch it because I've almost talked myself into something to the point where it becomes almost like an off-season meme, and, and I suddenly get afraid of it. Sure. And, and keep in mind, these these week one lines, they've been out for, I mean, really since like the end of May. Right. So everybody else who, who you can kind of assume that people that start betting this stuff in the middle of summer are probably pretty into college football, right? Your casual guy is, is, not, is not sending 10 dimes offshore to, to, to bet these openers for week one that come out in the middle of summer. So there's a couple things to look at in this game if you wanted to. I would say, okay, what, what does my power rating say about this game? You know, what 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 would you say that that the margin would be for, for USC? And it would depend. I mean, just uh, 13, or you said you added it at 10? Um, uh, the book, so the, the sports book I'm looking at right now has it at 10 and a half. Okay. And I'm showing so if you would have asked me hour. after. Okay. Ten, so and, 10 and, and actually half that's a huge difference. So basically, right. It's a huge difference. And that, that shopping around like that can really make a, a 
legitimate difference in, in your win percentage because those, those two, three points over the course of the year are probably a percentage point or two in your win rate. And that's that's money in your pocket or or not in your pocket. So let, let's say that uh, that your your power ratings said that you liked USC by 14. Okay, well, damn, I'm, I'm going to take USC there. Uh, I'm going to go kind of against the summer meme. A couple other things I want to consider. Do we actually know who's going to start for, for USC at quarterback yet? I think no. it's going to be JT Daniel, but you know maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe there could be somebody else. Then I want to pull up USC's schedule because I, I do think, and I don't think this is really a thing in the NFL, but in college, I do think there's this idea of sort of the look-ahead game or the the, the letdown game coming off a, a really huge game because college kids are a little more emotional. They're a little bit less professional. They're, I mean, they're obviously not professional technically. Um, Depends on what state. Yeah. <laughs> uh they have Stanford the next week. Right. Now, does this mean that they will not play as hard against against Fresno? Does this mean that they will not be as focused against Fresno? I, I, I have a hard time believing that. This is a team that came off a poor year last year. They want to come out and probably make a statement. However, you know, if they're up if they're up 17 late, I don't know that they're going to be dropping back Jake Daniel a whole lot to to increase that lead. So I need them to cover to, to cover double digits. I need them to win by by eleven or more. Uh, I don't necessarily love the fact that they have a, a major conference game on deck the next weekend there. So maybe I would take and, and adjust my my power rating down half point for that okay. potentially. So if I thought I, I liked USC by fourteen after looking at this additional data, okay, maybe maybe I only like them by thirteen and a half. So. Maybe it's still a play because the line is 10 and a half and I'm getting three points, 13 and a half versus 10 and a half, three points uh, of what we would call surplus value. Well, all right, I'm still going to bet it. Maybe I just wouldn't bet it quite as hard as if they had some cupcake game the following week. All right, what about a game like Oregon and Auburn? And the reason I bring this up is because that's a very high-profile game in a, in a somewhat lackluster week one. All right. And so if I'm again, casual gambler, I want to, I want to bolt on a little excitement and interest into a game that maybe I only would just have a casual rooting interest in. All right. The issue here is that line is living somewhere around three, three and a half. Okay. That's so close. Is there any way to examine that in a professional manner? Is that something that are pro gamblers going to even touch that? Or are they going to go look for more exploitable margins? In other words, do I just lay something on Oregon because I think it's fun or or Auburn or whomever? So the exploitable margins are really just the difference between your projection and the line, right? And that can can come on a 20-point spread. It can come on a spread of of one point. Uh, In fact, there's a great argument to be made that Sometimes these games with the smaller spreads are more exploitable because of, of what we call key numbers in gambling. You ever heard key numbers, Godfrey? Nope. Explain key numbers to the audience. All right. So key numbers, right? Three, four, seven, ten. Some people would say 14, but really three and seven are, are the two key numbers you, you need to, to know. Why? Well, because points are scored in threes and typically sevens in college football. Right. So, okay. And, and those are numbers that coaches – literally coach to either like when you score to try to get you know quote unquote within this many points if you're mounting a comeback or if, if you're taking the lead you want to make sure that you're going ahead by at least three 
or by at least seven. Nobody goes because first. those right those values equal possession time essentially. Like a coordinator would look at that and say, if we're down by seven, that's two, or we're down by ten, that's two possessions. Correct. So if you were going to like basically buying points, which is probably a little too advanced for this right now, but some of these sports books will let you almost access a drop down menu and t- and change the spread for a price. Mm-hmm. Of course, don't do this because they know that they know the value of the price and, uh, of the spread, and they're not going to. Basically, never buy points. They've already done the math on it. You probably have not. It's it's a it's a really bad thing to do for the consumer. But so, in other words, what you're saying is that some books will allow you to manipulate the line and and tease it, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, t- well teasing is typically involves kind of like a parlay bet with two or more teams for an adjusted spread. But so let's say I'll see if, if this one book that I'm on right now lets me do it. Yeah, they do. They will. All right. So I, I have Auburn minus three here. Okay. Now let's say, ah oh man, okay. this could be this could be a close game. I want to uh, I want to take this down to Auburn minus two and a half. They just charged okay. me twenty cents to in, instead of instead of one ten odds, you know, just normal normal odds. Now it's minus a dollar thirty in order in order to access Auburn for that. So you're paying a huge premium. Why? Because the books know that key numbers right matter. And if you if you, if I want to take this down to two and a half, so I only have to lay two and a half points, so that so that three makes me a winner as opposed to pushing, I'm going to pay through the nose on on that to the book in order in order to achieve that better spread via paying more uh, more juice, more vig, you know, more more odds to the house. So that that that's something to really to 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 keep in mind here. As you get up in spreads, and this kind of goes back to your idea of, of finding value and, and do you want to tax small spreads or big spreads. As you go up in spreads, like the difference between 31 and like 33 is not nearly as significant as going from, let's say, three to four or two to three or six to seven or seven to eight, nine to 10, 10 to 11. You, you get my point? As you go up in numbers, right. because those numbers and those margins occur less frequently, uh, like not many games are decided by 31, uh, and we we have good data on how many games are decided by literally every single margin you could think of, going back basically until when the clock rules changed. Uh, you you want to be really conscious of that. So if you can, you don't want to lay seven and a half. You want to lay seven, which is why you, you want to find it. You want to go out there and find it at a different book. You don't want to have to pay to take that spread down because again. The books have already done the math on this. They know uh, how much it should cost, and they're going to add a little premium on top of it to make sure they get yours. And uh, that, that's a long-term losing proposition. So, yeah, don't buy points. Keep key numbers in mind. And shop for books. Yeah. All right, uh, we're going to transition for a second. Um, how many days until Florida State football? <laughs> I got 2,000 likes off that response. So for those of you who don't know, um, earlier this week, Florida State football just decided to, I don't know. Why don't you explain this? Because Florida State football uh, has had some, uh, let's go inconsistency in its in its uh, public messaging the last two years. Is that is that generic enough of an explanation? Yeah. Uh, so they had a person running their social media who was absolutely terrible. Uh, their Instagram account under this person's management would uh, get into fights with fans routinely in the comment section. Um, Always a good idea. Yeah. Uh, uh, said, uh, don't even bother coming to the games. The, the players don't don't need you, essentially. Um, 
many other things like that, which were concerning. And eventually uh, that one person who was doing that or who was working there no longer works there. Uh, They also needed some help graphically in the recruiting department. And uh, they did hire somebody for that. Uh, Actually, it was somebody who I had suggested on Twitter. I was tweeting, it's pretty amazing how like these four people, and I added them, uh, routinely make better graphical edits than Florida State's in-house team, which is paid. Um, and so one of the people that I had added uh, was one of the people they ended up hiring to help with that. Uh, they are still in the process of hiring the the actual social media manager position. And I assume it'll be a good hire. Uh, they have really successful PR and communications and advertising marketing school. Um, and the job pays like around 50 grand and uh, with state benefits. So for that kind of money, you should be able to get somebody who's not a complete moron uh, and, and you know, have them tweet for a living. But so, uh, so yes. this incident is kind of like a microcosm, though, of, of the Florida State perception issues. We had the I think it was Matt Hayes who wrote the big piece um, where Jimbo goes squarely under the tires of the bus in the offseason talking about how bad things were. Obviously, you and I are privy to different pieces of information inside Florida State with Willie Taggart. And you've obviously covered the program forever. It's it's a mixed bag right now. And this is where we get to tiptoe and be super diplomatic for a second. The team is, we, we could say a couple things off the top, generically, going into that Boise State team game. There's almost inarguably a better team that will be fielded this year, right, than last year. Fair to say? Yeah, it would be hard to see a situation, <clears throat> excuse me, in which they're worse. Um, yes. You know, a- absent, like, total injury collapse type situation. Parsing the responsibility for what will be, because there there will be things lacking, okay? Kendall Bryles did a really good job immediately applying concepts at Houston. I don't know if you can necessarily create a one-to-one with the situation that he's stepping into at Florida State just because of the quality of the opponent, the quality of the player, the whole the whole situation. However, I do think they'll be better on offense. I think that's, that's safe to say. You can't get much worse on the offensive line, but this is not a team that's going to... Uh, upend Clemson or become a playoff contender in 2019. So when the inevitable criticism starts, it's really going to come down to how much can we shake this out to be, oh, this is a problem we inherited. This is a Jimbo Fisher issue. Or is this mismanagement from a guy who was overhyped in coaching circles and is now in over his head at his dream job? And that's really all it's going to shake out to be one or the other every time there's a problem at Florida State this year. Because year, year two is actually a little bit more treacherous than year one. Because in year one, you can almost throw everything at your predecessor. There's no doubt. Uh, there, so there are certain things that, that I think Willie deserves blame for. And there are certain things that I, I think Jimbo deserves blame for. Uh, the total lack of development of some positions over the last couple of years of Jimbo. If you look at the rates at which the four and five stars they signed ended up being drafted they uh, are nowhere close to the standard rates that you would expect. So that I would put, obviously, on, on Fisher. Uh, the Having the worst APR score in the Power 5, academic progress rate, uh, clearly not on Willie. That, that's a four-year rolling average. Uh, Let's I, pause for a second on that one. How does that happen at a school this size? And what I mean by a school this size is not how good they are in football. And I don't mean how successful they've been or how much money they bring in. A school this size, a major program in the the ACC, a Power 5 conference, should have so much infrastructure 
built into its football program, especially at a school where football is the emphasis, to where there are at least two to three people whose entire jobs are to monitor for APR and academic eligibility. You just don't see this at this level, right? Where it's you get into down, this, the, you have to the 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 head guy has to actually care. So when academics comes to him or whoever works for him and says, "Hey, this guy's not showing up to tutoring. This is not happening. We know these guys aren't, aren't going to class." Okay, academics can't force a kid go to go to class. There right. has to be support for academics. Uh, from the football administration, the, the staff, you know, the, the guys who can control it. And ultimately, the last couple of years, there, there wasn't. Um, the, the, the people in academics were really unsatisfied with the response from football and the, okay, the, so the a- lack of follow through. APR, definitely on the previous administration. Yeah. There's no way you can blame APR on a guy who's been there for a year and change. So that right? caused some issues because they basically had to hope and pray that the guys on the roster would graduate. Right, like literally continue to progress, make academic progress, and graduate, because they, if they had continued to go go, go in a bad direction, they could have missed a bowl because of like a, an APR bowl ban. And for those of you who don't know, the, I won't get into the actual minutia of the APR math, but essentially, you want to operate with APR cushion so that if you have somebody leave. If you have somebody who's kicked off the team, if you have someone who just doesn't go to class, or you have a couple people, maybe they just leave, they go pro, you're always accounting for that probability because that's the nature of big-time college football. What Florida State has lost, essentially, is any cushion whatsoever. Right. Yeah, they are. Uh, they they were on thin ice there. Things seem to be trending in the positive direction there. Now, here's some things that, that I do blame Willie for. So the, the terrible state of the roster, especially at some positions, obviously, that's a Jimbo thing. You, you, you don't control what you inherit. And the, and the APR, which was a pretty big handcuff for certain things that I'm about to explain now, obviously a, a, a Jimbo issue. Now, Willie came out and made the comment that you know that he had heard that there were a lot of you know kind of bad apples on, on this uh, on this team, but you know in his experience there there really weren't turds on there. Uh, he was wrong about that. I suspect he knew he was wrong about that, and I still don't know why he came out and said that. It's year one. You have a good amount of cushion to play with. Which, what he should have said was, you know, look, we had heard that there was definitely some, you know, some problem kids on this team. I, I came in here and said, I don't know what happened with the last guy. I gave everybody a clean slate. If everybody acts right, everybody will, will, will still be here, and we'll see who's here the next year. In, in, in the no turds comment, and some of those comments that he made, he unnecessarily gassed up this roster to the fans and created expectations uh, that I thought were a little bit inflated. You're um, talking about the 2018 roster going into last season. Correct. Yes. And so I would definitely so I would 110 agree with you on that. It was even worse. Yes. Yeah. So Willie's messaging there was poor because I guarantee you there are people who told him about the problems on on the roster. And yes, you can give him a clean slate, but two months is not a sample size to tell if kids are going to act right or not. Um, but it was just such a it was such a new car smell moment, and I was down there about I want to say it was maybe literally this week last year doing a preseason profile on him and the whole dream job thing. And I, you know, it wasn't all sunshine and roses, but it was close. It was close. I I don't know if the reality had set in on him and talking to him after the fact, I got a comment that is in line with most of the jobs that he's had with the exception of Western Kentucky, where it was a ground up build. And he did have familiarity as a former assistant with the roster and the culture when you talk about what he got at South Florida and then what he was dealing with at Oregon, 
albeit briefly, was he, and, you know, it's not the most PC term, but he always says, hey, they're always bitching. You know, like, he can't stand that. That's one thing he talks about a lot is just this indignant attitude of, you know, what do I not have? And this is typical coach speak. You and I have encountered this from almost every college football coach where it's, hey, adopt a positive viewpoint. Talk about what you have, not what you don't. Leadership qualities, et cetera. You know, all that pablum, right? But I in talking with him, I was a little shocked at how shocked he was to find that at Florida State. His assumption, and this is, maybe it's a buyer beware, bud, because Oregon is not Florida State, flat out. I mean, you make all the jokes you want. I know Oregon beat Florida State in the playoff, whatever. Culturally, it's not. It, it's not It's not in the perception of, of the truest, highest echelons of college football. And I don't say that to slight Oregon in any way. It's just reality, okay? When he got to Florida State, his perception was, I think, the same perception of most of America in terms of college football fans, which is that's a marquee top 10 program, so life should always be good. And if you're there as a new coach, you're probably just coming in to adjust or, or mentally revamp. You're not, you're not coming in to redo the foundation. And that's right. what shocked him so much. Now, should he have figured that out between being hired in January and, and that Labor Day game against VTech? Yeah, probably. So, yeah, that is a key point to make here because contrast Willie's comments with what uh, Scott uh, Scott Frost said at Nebraska. Frost comes out and says, it's going to get worse, maybe a lot worse, before it gets better. Yeah, Willie said almost the exact opposite. Now, if, if they had stayed healthy on the offensive line, I think that they very easily could have won eight, Maybe if they get breaks nine games last year, but that what is a the, thing. What was he that tolerance level though? They couldn't run practice with their backup offensive linemen, right? Their first strings right. looked okay in the scrimmage, from what I was told. But they knew going into the year, if you had an injury or especially two injuries up front, you were screwed. And they got an injury in fall camp, and they got an injury in the first game. And literally, what they couldn't have happen in order to have a successful season happened. In in the first kind of in, in the last week of the preseason, in the first week of the season, and they had to live with it for for the next uh, for the next eleven weeks. The issue was it was going to be bad once that happened anyway. Willie's messaging on that, in my opinion, was poor. Gotcha. Because no, he should have known a, a, about the lack of depth. That was an obvious thing that guys on the coaching staff told me. Uh, no anxiety about Boise though, right? In the fan base. Oh, of course not. Um, if they lose that game, they'll have like maybe fifty thousand people at the next one. Um, and I, what is it? Who who do they have in week two? Uh, Louisiana Monroe. Ah, yeah. The other issue with with that kind of messaging and the result being so far away from that messaging is that it causes people to think you don't know what you're doing. Yes, that's the, well, that's the biggest problem. It's really not, and I think you would agree. In most of these hardcore circles. I don't care if it's Florida State, if it's Auburn, if it's Clemson or Texas, it doesn't matter. You were you're willing to live with temporary adjustment, even at the major programs. I think what you're what what makes you anxious as a booster, as a big time booster, is am I investing time and money in a person who doesn't know what they're doing? I think that's way more detrimental than saying, "Hey, this guy just came in and we lost to you know Wake Forest or whatever because the roster sucks." Right, exactly right. So that that is my my. I think there's three primary mistakes that Willie made. That was the first one, the, the the messaging that was inconsistent. I think with the potential downside risk of where the roster could go. If everything went right, the messaging would have been fine. I don't think he accounted for the downside risk. The second thing, the mistake that I think he and his staff did, or actually I'm going to say that for the third. The second one I thought, which is very important, 
is clearly the hires that he made as offensive line coach and offensive coordinator did not work out at all. I mean, those were guys who, if they hadn't left for other jobs, were probably going to be fired. Uh, Willie was, from what I understand, basically having to teach his offense to those guys, and I'm not sure that they ever meshed and clicked. Uh, If you think about the head coach, who's an offensive guy, offensive coordinator and offensive line sort of triumvirate, last year Willie had the most knowledge on the offense by far. This year, with the addition of Kendall Bryles, and I think maybe equally as important here, Randy Clements, Willie goes from being the most knowledgeable guy about the offense in that trio to the least, which sounds like a negative, but I actually think that is probably a positive. So he flunked his offensive line coach and offensive coordinator hires in in year one. So that was his second real mistake there. The third one, in my opinion, was after you get totally dominated by Syracuse and you have an offensive tackle who's a backup, scoring a zero, according to pro football folks. I've never seen that when you take 30-something snaps and you actually score a zero. Uh, You needed to adjust your recruiting strategy uh, much sooner than they did. And and what ended up happening, in my opinion, was they kept on their plan A's for a long time because the guys still really liked it. This is a good recruiting staff. They are really good with relationships with kids. They, They really connect. Kids have a great comfort level when they get on campus. With this staff, they, they constantly say it feels like home. I can just be myself here. A, a, a lot of language there. But they stayed on their plan A's for too long, and somebody there needed to stand up and say, hey, I don't care how much this kid's texting us, how many nice things he said to us. We may not make a bowl, guys. We we need to go ahead and, and get off some of these plan A's and really go hard at some plan B's and plan C's who can we actually can, might be able to have a chance to sign and get on this roster. And they waited way too long to do that, in my opinion. They had to end up going to like plan D and plan E and F in some situations and signing some players who, in my opinion, are not Florida State caliber players in that class. It does seem like they've corrected that this year. Their class that they have is is much stronger. I don't think they have anybody who, in my evaluation, can't play at Florida State in this class. But that was a big deal because Willie had to hit, like, if you're going to have success as a head coach, that first full class that you sign, which last year's class was, has to be a good class, and in my opinion, he flubbed that a little bit. Uh, just to jump back to number two for a second, I always try and figure out when the expiration date on privileged information is because I'm always I, I'm invested in sharing as much as I can. Walt Bell was a terrible hire from the jump. It was known to be a bad hire, not necessarily so much reflective of Walt Bell, but that's just not a fit. I mean, it, these things are hard to describe until you get around these people in a, in a, in a complete context in terms of personality, management style, just work ethic, all that stuff. Walt Bell and Willie Taggart were a, were a horrible fit from jump. I question it when he did it. The circumstances are muddy, and he paid dearly for it, flat out. I mean, Walt Bell. I'll put, and I'll also say this, and I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm going to shock anybody with saying this. Going to UMass as even as head coach on the trajectory that Walt was on doesn't make sense because I've had I had two different candidates for that UMass job say. I went and took the interview, but I wasn't going to take the job. But that assumes that he had a job at Florida State still, and I, I don't. Oh, make he that did. Assumption. He did not at all. Right. He was. I mean, going you, to yeah. What I'm implying here heavily right. is that he jumped. I mean, he jumped to a job that is really freaking hard, really freaking hard because it's a it's an FBS independent job where you essentially have resources that are underneath the bottom half of the Mac. And you're recruiting to an area that does not have a lot of college football talent. There's not a lot of college football support. I mean, UMass is is essentially the conversation that that everyone's having about UConn right now. Right. 
And it's so, even tougher because they they don't even have a, a conference affiliation. So to leave the OC job at Florida State, come on. So here's one thing to think about too, and I do think this matters in terms of how much blame you want to put on Willie for this. Willie and like guys like Pruitt and some others were the first people hired in the early signing period era. And they had to do an absolute fire drill of hiring assistant coaches in order to try to salvage anything out of that first short season class. Uh, and the two guys he hired for the O-line coach and the OC did have reputations as, as good recruiters. And I think that played into that some, um, you know, it, it clearly it did not work. I'm interested in seeing elsewhere. Like Tennessee's already made a, made an OC change after just one year, right? How many of these right. guys who got hired in the first year of the early signing period where it was already tough as a traditional coaching hire to put together a class in 10 weeks. These guys with the early signing period, they had some of them had like two and a half weeks after being hired. If, if that to get in there and salvage a class, I, I won't be surprised if, if this is not just a Willie thing or not just a Pruitt thing, but literally a looking back, man, that everybody having to kind of do a, a fire drill there to get people hired. Um, in that first year of the signing period. That was tough. But Elliot, you bring up a great point. Uh, We will actually get to that on the next episode. Thank you, sir. All right.